This is Maxine and the Planets Unknown, a sci-fi audiobook in podcast form, written by, performed by, and produced by Brad Lawrence. That's me, to quote Karina Longworth. Before we get started, one small note on the sound quality. I am not recording this in a studio. I am recording this in the tiny side room of my Brooklyn apartment during a pandemic. All around my apartment are the sounds of ambulance sirens because of the pandemic and children trying to get just a little bit of outdoor time on the concrete splotch that passes for a backyard in an apartment in Brooklyn. So, I have done my absolute best to soundproof against this as much as I can, but Brooklyn, pandemic, ambulances, children. For God's sake, think of the children. And do your best to enjoy what I think is a pretty good story, in spite of what may be some occasionally imperfect audio. Thank you. Maxine and the Planets Unknown, Episode 6, Chapters 11 and 12. Chapter 11. Sumner fought his way back to Sandoval's door. He'd tried calling her. Hell, he'd tried calling everyone, from the command crew to Eddie's house of falafel. No answers anywhere. They were all registering on the manifest, but then so had Charlie Bennett, for all the good it had done him. On his way, he had knocked on doors. Each time he did this, there was a feeling like a fish hook in his brain was trying to drag him away from the door and back to his place. A couple of times, there had just been an excruciating desire to crawl into the nearest maintenance tube and curl up. He had resisted all of this, including the feeling that he could now identify as the thing that preceded him going blank and finding himself back at his own front door. It was a sensation like there was a vast, dark waterfall in his brain, and the easiest thing to do would just be to let his consciousness get sucked right over in the blackness beyond its edge. That was the path to comfort and safety and security. Somewhere in that blackness was the place he always knew he was meant to be, the place he could just lie down and feel forever at ease, and forever would last only so long as it took him to finish anything edible and starve to death, and he knew he would be entirely content the whole time. But he wouldn't. If that were the goddamn case, then why did he keep finding himself back at the goddamn door? Why was it no matter how many times he tried to lay down and die, the way everyone else around him was trying to do, why did he always get back up? Because whatever was happening to this town, it was not going to happen to them alone. He was still a man who knew he had a job to do, and he could still make himself do it. And he could resist that pull. It took every bit of focus, every last bit of will, but he could make it happen. But the more he exerted that will, the more the thing in his brain pushed back. 
Making his way to the doc's office was like trudging through cement while being attacked by a swarm of bees and coming down with food poisoning all at the same time. It was all he could do not to crawl on the ground and mess his trousers. One of the things that kept him moving forward was what he had seen on command deck. It had been among the scattered card deck of memories that had come flooding back to him earlier, and now he couldn't let it go. But the shudder it induced made it no surprise to him that his brain had tried. He had taken the starboard lift command deck. He had begun to realize that people were acting strangely, though he hadn't quite found the shape of it yet. He had called up first, but no one had answered. And, after much painful deliberation, he had decided that he would have to go up there himself. On his way up the lift, he could see how empty the streets were. There had been a smattering of lights and activities, small cluster points, but the vast majority of the townspeople were unaccounted for, in their homes or somewhere else out of sight. There were many blocks that were just deserted and silent. He wished he were able to place this in time. Having the sequence of events so jumbled up only added to the confusion and frustration. But try as he might, it was just impossible to put it all into any logical order. This meant he had no idea if what he had encountered on command deck had happened yesterday and was likely still the situation, or if it had all happened a week ago and now things were infinitely, inconceivably worse. When he had reached the top, he had headed directly to the bridge. First stop, Captain Lee. When he'd gotten there, he'd found the door sealed. It didn't open when he approached. It wasn't necessarily that strange. Some captains like to keep their bridge secure at all times, strictly controlling traffic to and from the deck. Sumner didn't know if Captain Lee was one of those kinds of captains, but then Sumner's knowledge of the captain and the crew was scant. The flight crew spent the entire voyage in deep freeze with the ship on autopilot until it was roughly four years out from the destination. Beyond that, three or four of them were brought out about once a decade for a six-month interval in which they did routine checks on their heading and the status of the ship, filed reports back to Earth, do a little meet-and-greet with whoever was serving on the select committee and whichever of the private military types were awake at that moment. Sumner had buzzed the access panel. There was a long delay, then a vague voice came over the comm. Uh... Identify yourself, please. This is Sheriff Sumner Gray. I need a word with the captain. Uh, hold, please. There were several long seconds of silence. The command crew and the private military attachments were foreign creatures to Sumner and most of the other passengers, and he supposed that was true from the other end as well. But the passengers lived out their lives in one continuous line of days, albeit in the unusual situation of being in a ship in space. They went through their days and their lives, forming relationships, starting families, building businesses, being people in the same basic way that people had been people since they lived in caves. The uniform types were different. Surgically and genetically modified to come in and out of cryogenic suspension with no physical or mental degradation, they were expensively tweaked versions of people, and they were disconcerting to be around. There was no real common point of reference between them and, well, 
probably anyone. Their upbringings and backgrounds were a century in the past, and their sense of everything else was a series of disjointed snapshots separated by years of nothingness. This gave them a closed-off and inscrutable quality. When you spoke to them, it was all business, debriefing them on whatever had come to pass in the time they were down. They addressed the issues that needed addressing, checked any communiques from Earth, conducted a series of inspections, and went through a series of drills, the purpose of which were all utterly opaque to the non-uniformed observer. All of that was fine. But any time something technical wasn't happening, any time you found yourself in a quiet moment with these people who were notionally as human as you were, it became immediately clear that the common ground was scant. They would close off. This bothered Sumner less than it did the select committee members, who were used to social connection being the grease that made things move. Their general consensus, voiced aloud only after the soldiers and crew had returned to their respective hibernation cycles, was that the process affected their brains in some way and made them odd. But Sumner knew that only a certain self-selecting kind of person would choose such a life in the first place. They were strange, they were clannish and idiosyncratic, and their motivations were inscrutable. But whereas the select members thought it was because of the time they spent in Deep Freeze, or the alterations they had gone through to be able to endure it, Sumner thought they had it backwards. Sumner thought the uniforms had been that way going in, and it was why they had chosen to do it in the first place. The comm panel buzzed to life. The voice was back. Yeah. Uh, okay. The door slid open, and Sumner walked onto the bridge. The bridge was a captain's chair, sitting on a raised stage overlooking three con stations, and all of them facing a wall-sized screen. Each chair was occupied by a crew member in a white uniform. There was a lot of white here, actually. In addition to the uniforms, the walls were white, the floor and the ceiling were white, and the stations were white, aside from the screens and the touch panels. To Sumner, it felt like he was walking into a room made out of a bathroom sink, and it wasn't until right then that he realized that while he'd been to the command deck in the past, he had never visited the bridge itself. The hospitality was wanting. No one turned when he walked in. No one greeted him or said anything at all. And there was a smell. It was musty, stale, and heavy. Body odor trapped under layers of clothes. It was everywhere. He couldn't see the faces of the two men and one woman who were sitting at the con stations, but he could see untrimmed facial hair along jaw lines and a kind of gritty sheen on the back of their necks. Captain Lee. The captain was sitting in his chair, staring at the screen. On the screen was a satellite feed of empty space. Sumner approached the captain's chair, and as he came around, he could see that Lee had a full beard, which was new. Sumner had only met the captain in person a few times, but he came off as clean-shaven and fastidiously kept. His uniform was always regulation crisp, every hair in place, his peaked cap tucked neatly under his arm. Now the cap was sitting on his head at an uneven pitch. The hair peeking out around it was shiny and greasy. The rest of the uniform seemed anything but crisp. 
and the beard framed bruise-colored bags and folds under eyes that stared ahead with opaque concentration. The stale smell grew stronger as Sumner got closer. It wasn't until he got right up to the captain that he saw the fifth crewman. It was a woman lying on the floor on the other side of the captain's chair. She appeared to be asleep. Sumner straightened. Captain Lee, uh, I'm Sheriff Gray. We've met before. It took Lee several seconds to visibly register that he was being addressed. Then his eyes seemed to come back from some great distance, or at least halfway back. Sheriff, right. You are the lawman in town. Sumner wasn't sure what to say to that. Then Lee smiled awkwardly and briefly and added, Pow, pow, come out with your hands up. <laughs> All of this was said without ever taking his gaze from the screen showing a field of distant stars. Uh, yeah, anyway, uh, Captain, I believe there is, well, frankly, I believe there's something wrong on the Contiki. I think we have something affecting the passengers and... Perhaps the crew. Do you want to put a posse together, Sheriff? Go after the bad guys? He ticked his chin in the direction of one of his crew. Jonas! A crewman that Sumner assumed was the Jonas in question answered with a flat, Captain, run our launch sequence again. Jonas started tapping away at his screen. Lee then spoke to the air. What is the ETA on the window? The female con officer answered, We now stand at seven days, eighteen hours, Captain. Sol standard? Sol standard, Captain. There was something rote about this exchange, like it was a well-worn groove that they had just gone over for the umpteenth time. Sumner had a basic understanding of what they were talking about. The command section of the Contiki was basically a tugboat, and the city section was essentially its barge. At some point, a launch window would roll around, and the command section would return to space, set the heading for Earth, and the crew and private military would go back into deep freeze for the journey back. That was the rough outline of the thing anyway, but they were supposed to be planet-side for up to 18 months. Sumner didn't know much about flying the ship, but he knew a lot about the settlement protocol, and the settlement protocol called for NHI to provide support and security for up to 18 months before their employees pulled up stakes and made for home. Now, they were talking a little over a week. Uh, Captain Lee, it seems to me that you might be planning a premature departure? Captain Lee didn't respond to this. Captain, I'll, I'll say it again. I think something has gone wrong with this landing and I need your help to sort it out. I don't think this would be a good time for you and your folks to cut out early. Again, nothing. Captain, I'm going to need you to acknowledge what I'm telling you. Suddenly, the captain looked directly at Sumner, as did the rest of the crew. Just like that, all eyes were on him now. From beyond the captain, Sumner heard shuffling, and then a hand appeared on the arm of the captain's chair, 
and the woman who had been sleeping on the floor suddenly hauled herself into a standing position. Her movements were stiff and blunt, like someone coming out of a deep slumber, but her eyes were intent and focused. In fact, that sort of vague distance Sumner had noted when he walked onto the bridge was entirely gone from everyone. He now had the crew's full attention. Sheriff, we have a renewed sense of urgency about returning to space. Is that going to be an issue for you, Sheriff? Sumner felt his hand instinctually twitch for his hip, but of course his sidearm was back on that hook by his door. Still, Sumner was a man who had learned to trust his gut. Whatever was happening here, it clearly was not up for discussion, and there was nothing he was going to do about that. I think I uh, understand the position you're in. Why don't I let you get back to it? There was a slight cooling in the room. That would be very much appreciated, Sheriff. Thank you for visiting the bridge today. It was, uh, my pleasure. With that, they all went back to what they were doing. Jonas, where are we on that sequence? Sumner backed slowly out of the room and didn't turn around until the door slid home in front of his nose. Sumner turned back toward the lift. Just as he got to it, he heard a noise in the opposite direction. That was the area set aside for the hired military. Someone was up and rumbling around down the hall. That made sense. Two-thirds of the company had already been thawed of the plan to bring the rest out and the townspeople were ready to start surveying beyond the drop zone. Maybe, Sumner thought, they could be the help he was looking for. But if that was the case, why was all the hair standing up on the back of his neck? And why was every instinct he had screaming at him to get the hell off the command deck as soon as possible? Still, he needed to know. He made his way down the hall. There were rooms on either side, but all of them seemed to need security codes, so he just kept moving. He could see that there was one door toward the very end that was open, and he could hear indistinct sounds, shuffling and clanking, coming from inside. When he came into the doorframe, everything stopped. Then... There were about a dozen assault rifles pointed directly at him. There were 12 of the hired military personnel, all of them in their full battle rattle, including high-caliber rifles. They had formed a defensive position around something, oblong objects, like, like, like the VR coffins down in the gaming center if the coffins were designed to survive a war or being tossed into the sun. They had haphazardly stockpiled these things in the center of what appeared to be their mess hall. From the scrapes on the floor, he could tell that he had walked in as they were dragging their booty into position. He had interrupted them, and from the way they were all pointing their guns at him, Sumner could tell that they did not appreciate being interrupted. One of the soldiers, a woman with dark eyes from what little Sumner could see of her from under the mountain of combat gear, suddenly started coming his way in a smooth rolling fashion that kept the gun pointed squarely at his chest, 
The fluid motion was weirdly contrasted against the fact that she was screaming at him as she came. Identify yourself! Who are you? What are you doing here? What are your orders? Sumner just had time to raise his hands in the universal gesture of I am unarmed before she was right on top of him with the gun barrel centimeters away from his eyeball. I'm Sheriff Sumner Gray. I'm from town. The woman stared at him for a long moment. She was breathing hard, and if suspicion was enough to kill, the look in her eyes would have already splattered Sumner's brains across the hallway behind him. Sheriff? She said the word like she was trying to make sense of it. Sumner felt like she recognized it as a rank, but couldn't fit it into her mental org chart. What is your portfolio? Portfolio? What's your mission? Okay. Here we go. Uh, town safety, law and order. The soldier ran her tongue along the corner of her mouth as she thought about this. Sumner could see it poking at a spot just in front of a lower cuspid. Sumner stole a glance over her shoulder and decided he would chance a question of his own. And what is uh, your mission? Um, lieutenant? Yes, lieutenant. There was a tone suggesting that only an idiot would have had to put the question mark on the end, as Sumner just had. Our mission is to build a perimeter and to consolidate our personnel behind that perimeter so as to maintain a maximally defensible position. Sumner took that in, and then looked again at the stack of weird tubes. Then a human face fell onto what turned out to be a glass panel on the front of one of those tubes. It landed with a soft thunk and kind of smeared itself across the frosted glass, giving it a distorted, flattened appearance. It was a man from all evidence, and as his weight shifted, his eyelid pulled back, revealing a lifeless eyeball. Sumner realized right then that he had never seen a cryogenic chamber before this moment. They had consolidated their personnel, but they had done so without waking them up or bringing them out of the deep freeze according to any kind of sequence. They had just unplugged them and dragged them into this room because it was, he guessed, more defensible. Do you think it uh, might have been advisable, Lieutenant, to uh, wake the others up before getting them down here to your position? Not in our brief! There was a barely restrained fury behind her voice that made Sumner realize that he may have been questioning a command decision that she herself had made. Waking them up is not in our orders! Then something shifted behind her eyes. The fury shifted into something else, and when she next spoke, it seemed to have been replaced with a kind of plea. Do, do you have the authority to change our orders? There was a shine at the corner of her eye. Sumner thought quickly. There was a gamble here. He could try to take control of whatever this was, and he did feel desperate for help. But clearly, some instability had worked its way deep into these people. And what happened when all of these mentally ill, heavily armed, and genetically modified soldiers found out that he was lying and that he did not have command authority? No, 
best to leave this mess of trouble exactly where he'd found it. No, uh, I do not have the authority to change your orders. I think you have this entirely under control, Lieutenant, and I should let you return to it. She eased back slightly. Good luck, soldier. And with that, Sumner saluted her. The lieutenant came up, dropped the rifle to her side, and saluted him back. Then, as she watched him, Sumner eased himself out of the room and made his way back to the lift, walking steadily so as not to give the impression that he was getting away. As the lift doors closed, Sumner let out his breath. And then he was back at his front door, and then he was on his way to see Sandoval. That's where he was now, on his way to see Sandoval. He figured if anyone would understand what was happening here, it would be the dock. Sumner would never regret being right about anything quite as much. Chapter 12 it would not be right to say that Maxine had its attention now, not in the way that Maxine or Sumner or any of the passengers of the Contiki would have understood the word anyway. It just wasn't quite that small. It was big. It was also small, but it was so much small that it became big again. But being so big meant the small had to attend to itself. There were so many things that were it, so many things that lived on it and in it and through it, and all of those things were it, but not it by themselves. It was too big to be the small things, but the small things made it bigger and became it for the short time that they were there. There had been so many of them, and they had come, and then they were gone, and it was ever aware of their presence, but never aware of their passing, because there were always more after. The teeming and the finite contributing to its infinite singularity. The small things took care of themselves until they didn't. That was rare. If time had meant anything, it would have said it had been centuries. Had it ever said anything? Had it ever said anything? There was an attraction to the idea, a gravity, a pull, as it coalesced around the tiny concept of saying. The way a storm coalesces around an eye, the decision was made, without any one thing making it. This Little thing, this little bit of the minor bother that it had sealed off to isolate and smother and extrude and extract, this little bit had not behaved. It had wandered far and was wandering further, and that was interesting in a small way. It would need to become small to say to the small thing. The thing inhaled it and exhaled it, and it was different when it was exhaled than when it had been inhaled. It knew things now about the small thing. It understood. Understanding was small. More often than not, and by often, it meant millennia ago, 
if it could be said to concern itself with things like meaning. More often than not, it preferred just knowing. Knowing as one piece of being, understanding was something that required effort and precision and synthesis. It required being now instead of forever, which it normally would not have bothered with. But then again, what else was it doing? This has been Maxine and the Planets Unknown by Brad Lawrence. Intro music, Bumbling by Pictures of the Floating World. Outro music, Children by the Creek by Chad Crouch. Thank you for listening.